Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast this week coming to you from four undisclosed locations in the UK. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Tashinsky, Andrew Hunter-Murray and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Anna. My fact this week is that logs used to be carried around the Andaman Islands by swimming elephants. (laughs) Mm. A lot of information to unpick in that. (laughs) Okay, here's the first one. Can, uh, in fact, you've actually answered it with your fact, but I was going to say, can elephants swim? I'm not going to dignify that with an answer, James. Uh, it's like you're questioning the veracity of my facts. What? Uh, yes, they can. Oh. They can swim. I see. I do see what you're saying. Is it just these elephants or all elephants? Oh, I thought he meant are the logs like a flotation device and they were just using that to... That's a great mm. point, Dan. That's exactly what I didn't really mean, but let's pretend I did. You, I mean, you don't get swimming lessons for dogs, do you? But if they jump into a pond, they're fine. Well, interesting you say that. My mum actually has a dog which can't swim. It's very embarrassing. But yes, largely, I think four-legged mammals can instinctively swim and elephants can uh, broadly. And these ones particularly can. But they can swim incredibly long distances, these particular Andaman elephants. And they... So what happened was um, the Andaman Islands, Andaman and Nicobar Islands, in fact, are uh, territories of India, about 572 islands altogether. And in about the 70s, they started logging there. And they brought a bunch of elephants over from mainland India. And they they sort of pulled down trees in the jungle. And then they'd load up the elephants with trees. And they'd take them to the beaches to be shipped off in barges. But the elephants had to log trees in various different islands. And there was no way of transporting them between the islands. And so they just sent them on their way to swim it. And they'd swim wow. like 30 kilometers 20, 30 kilometers between islands, wow. do some logging and drag the logs out to uh, to sort of barges out to sea and load them up. God, that's incredible. That is an incredible distance uh, to travel as an elephant. Are they getting guidance in terms of direction? You know, do currents uh, yes. take them out? And we've, is you there, know, are there, are there lanes for them to swim in? I, they're assigned, <laughs> heavily signposted. And I think humans would accompany them um, between the islands on small rafts and boats that couldn't accommodate the elephants i don't i actually i'm not sure maybe they had memorized various routes but i think that might be a step beyond a lot of elephants an elephant could remember any route it was given couldn't it Mm. what because an elephant never forgets exactly yeah right yeah Yeah. i didn't know that we were doing a common erroneous phrase-based facts now (laughs) (laughs) um the thing is about the elephants is i've read a, an article called Problems in the Land Vertebrate Zoogeography of Certain Islands and the Swimming Powers of Elephants by David Lee Johnson from 1980. Mm. And he says, I'm sure you've all read it, but he says, I'm sure all the listeners have read it, but he says <laughs> that elephants have such good eyesight and sense of smell that even kilometers and kilometers and kilometers away, they can see another island that most animals wouldn't be able to see. What? And also smell food on another island. Incredible. And because it can smell the food, it can find its way there. Yeah. So what? So you're saying the, the logging humans make a phone call to the next island saying, look, get a polo mint, leave it on the beach. I'm sending the elephant over now. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, can I just say, I'm not saying that. Donald Lee Johnson is saying that in his paper, Problems in the Land Vertebrate Ge- Geography of Certain Islands and the Swimming Powers of Elephants from 1980. He was saying that. I wasn't saying that. That's, that's so good. But you just need to, I don't know, James, you're quoting him pretty extensively. I think you are now saying that. <laughs> I, that's brilliant. It's, it's such a good idea. But as long as all you have to do is coordinate 
like no one right the elephants are moving today no one's allowed to open a banana Key. <laughs> Within a 50 mile radius. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's how you poach then, right? That, that's the best poaching tactic. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. That's true. All the elephants just fuck off this way. Where are they yeah. going? He's opened up an <laughs> The thing is that according to this paper, until the 70s and 80s, a lot of geographers assumed that elephants couldn't swim. Hmm. And so when you found elephant bones on an island, even if they'd gone extinct or something, or even if you found living elephants, then there must have been a land bridge because otherwise there's no way they could have got across. And that meant that a lot of geographers had these ideas of certain islands around the world that must have been connected by land at some stage because they assumed that elephants couldn't ah, swim. Really? See, Isn't that I, interesting? That's amazing. I thought I didn't properly know that elephants could swim, actually. I did know that they could walk underwater. That was a thing I knew at, at certain depths mm. because I've seen footage where they use their trunk as a snorkel. And so, yeah. yeah, that's that's really fun uh, when you see that bit of footage. But that, yeah, that's amazing. That they J- can... James, James, was it Donald Johnson you were saying? Yeah, it was, was Donald Lee Johnson in his paper yeah. "Problems in the Land vs. Ritsu <laughs> Geography." No, no, I, 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 I don't know if we okay, need to. Sorry, don't know if we need. Um, <laughs> But <laughs> I, d- I didn't read that paper. I'm probably I'm now the only person listening to or involved in this podcast who hasn't. But I think that I read a reference to it because there's a debate about how elephants got to Sri Lanka, isn't there? Yeah. And it was because it's about, how far is it from the Indian coast? Quite a long 30, way. 30, 50 quite, kilometers. Yeah. It is quite a long way, but it has elephants. And lots of other places used to have elephants like Malta and Crete and Cyprus. Yes. None of which I think I think have elephants now. No. I've been to Malta and it's it's quite a small island. You you would struggle to hide a, a wild elephant population on it. The elephants on Sri Lanka, I I think they're still swimming there. They're still making the journey over to Sri Lanka because every few months it seems like there's a story where a Sri Lankan elephant is caught at sea and is being swept around in the waves and has to be rescued. Because there was one that, you know, when the media like gets a theme and like reports on every instance of it and it turns out it's happening yeah. all the time and it happened once in 2017. A Sri Lankan elephant was found being washed around about 16 kilometres out to sea and, you know, they all had to get a raft and come and pull it in again and then two weeks weeks later two sri lankan elephants were found wow. uh, stranded at sea and had to be wow. dragged back in and it looks so funny you should look it up there's all these people around with rafts and then bobbing under the water just these two vast elephants who look so stupidly out of place in the middle of the ocean well, they look really kind they're really struggling aren't they and the first one anyway the 2017 one um, the elephant's really really struggling to swim and national geographic emailed the co-founder of elephant voices which i think is a charity called joyce pool they emailed her and asked her about elephant swimming Mm. and she says she wasn't surprised that the elephant was swimming out there because she said elephants are considered the best swimmers of any land mammal perhaps excluding trained human swimmers Uh, and then they showed her the video of this elephant really really struggling to swim (laughs) (laughs) and she said maybe the elephant was tired Wow, it's, so it's 16 funny. kilometers out. If you've swum 16 kilometers, pal, you'd be tired, wouldn't you? <laughs> I mm. certainly would. That was the, there was the theory at one point that the Loch Ness monster was a swimming elephant, wasn't there? <laughs> there was there? Yeah, because there was a story that there was a circus in town, and they thought let's bring the elephant out for a swim. And the very famous uh, photo that was seen, I think it was the famous photo, the surgeon's photo, it's called. Um, the thought is that that's the trunk just coming up through the water getting breath as it's going along. 
It's but, a not like humps going up to the to the trunk. In that's the, what in I the think monster. of the, in the yeah, photo. So yeah, so I think they think that that's the the head coming out uh, okay. from the back. Maybe yeah. it was giving the circus's camel uh, piggyback <laughs> in the water. <laughs> yeah, and then the snake was at the back. Yeah. <laughs> the thing, it's not. I guess it's not the stupidest theory ever, given that it it only requires us to believe in the existence of a, a badly managed circus rather than the existence of a dinosaur in a lake. Well, it's not a badly so, managed circus taking your elephant out for a swim. I think if they've I think if they've left the elephant in there and it's being photographed by the public, that's what I thought you no, were saying. No, I'm not saying that, the that there's a, a, an abandoned <laughs> elephant swimming Loch Ness. <laughs> That's what you're saying. If you're saying the Loch Ness monster is an elephant, then that's no. I'm saying the photo. The the fame, there was a thought that the the photo was an elephant. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it, they, they put it in, then they took it out. I see what you're saying. I thought you meant like Andy. There's been this elephant living underwater in Loch Ness <laughs> for hundred years, which and is almost you, more ridiculous than the Loch Ness. If you monster. look at that photo, actually, if you look at the surgeon's photo, you can just see in the corner of the shot um, a clown getting out of a little car. <laughs> yeah, and you can just see that it actually looks like water, but it's actually confetti that he's swimming yeah. through. <laughs> and the clown's got giant shoes and has been mistaken for Bigfoot, actually. So. <laughs> Well, we've moved out of the realm of, um, of facts, haven't we? Right. Do, you want, do, you want a, do you want a real fact about elephants? Yeah. I've got one. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to put it in James's special um, Donald Lee Johnson tongs for <laughs> <laughs> quoting without saying oh, yeah. this is definitely true. I think it's an amazing theory, though. The theory is that Cornwall's first road network ever was created by elephants. <laughs> okay. Uh, it's one of my favourite facts. I can't believe we've never mentioned it before. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Go on. This is according to researchers at the University of North Cornwall, who, who should know, frankly. Um, can I quickly debunk yeah. their theory before it's even sort of no, 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 no. And I would like to get my, <laughs> I'd like to get my thing up in the air before you take a pop at it, if okay. that's all right. Okay. okay. Up to 115,000 years ago, Cornwall had elephants, okay? That okay. Was, it was a bit warmer. It, it had them, all right? <laughs> um, now <Okay>. we <laughs> Okay. There are, there's a fossil record and all of that stuff. Most Sorry, just to elephant... check. So we're going to listen to this knowing it's wrong. We're just going to sit <laughs> no, here and listen to this. I, we're not because I know it's right. Okay? okay. And Anna may know something different, but let me tell you what I know. Right. So you know how ice ages kind of retreat and advance as, yeah. the, as the millennia go by. So the most recent uh, glacial maximum covered most of the UK, but it didn't cover Cornwall. Right. It didn't Correct. get that far That's south. That's definitely true. So most of the elephant tracks across the UK will have been covered by ice sheets and erased. But the ones in Cornwall were not. And what the theory is by these researchers is that herds of migrating woolly mammoths and and elephants um, who came to the UK, they came to England basically on their summer holidays when it was a bit warmer up there Mm -hmm. to eat. Those tracks that they had, their routes, which were used by them and by hunters, kind of map onto the road network in Cornwall today. Ironically, it's the smaller roads that they created and not the trunk roads which uh, which were created in modern times for modern needs. Yeah, yeah. But the smaller road network in Cornwall is created by elephants. Right, Fair. there. Nice. I've Fair said my nice. bit. Now, please, Anna, I get out your... just going to say um, it doesn't make any sense because the roads in Cornwall are so sodding narrow that two <laughs> elephants could never pass each other on them. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Actually, okay. in the Ice Age, these elephants, they got stuck behind tractors so often that they ended up trampling loads of extra roads. <laughs> when I was looking into um, elephants moving logs around everywhere, I discovered that they actually move trees um, and and poo them out eventually. So you know they they create trees. They're not smuggling trees in their anus. It's not a. It's I'm I'm getting. It's a big session on the toilet, isn't it? An oak. <laughs> 
<laughs> what I mean to As say a logger, is... You'd pay more, wouldn't you, for trees that hadn't been through the elephant's anus? <laughs> so what True. I mean to say is there's the African savannah elephant, and what it does is it basically, through eating, it transports seeds further than probably any other animal around. And this is including a lot of birds. Um, it's It can go as far as 65 kilometers in delivering seeds. And that's because its intestines are so long for the seeds and the food to get through um, that it takes something like 33 hours, I believe, for it um, before they actually start defecating the seeds that they might have swallowed. And the last one will come out 96 hours after they first swallowed a seed. And so they've been spreading plants and trees all over, you know, different parts um, at greater distances than, as I say, a lot of birds in the area and certainly any other land mammal. I wonder if they know they're doing it. Like they, they pick up a seed and eat it and then they sprint for 96 hours straight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some kind of conservation project. Exactly. Just open a banana in that area. They come running. <laughs> yeah. It's clever. Did we, you know, we talked about... Uh, a while ago about sort of elephant trunk uses oh yeah mm. and there there was a bit which sort of came after that which because we'd already recorded the podcast it didn't go in but it was anna found this website which had all the uses of an elephant's trunk and like as observed by scientists okay and one of the there are about 200 you know there are so many different things and they all they've all got a different name by the scientists so i don't think we mentioned this one of them is um uh mating pandemonium is one way they use their trunk one of them is dust with semen um, okay, so let's go back to the first one. Mating <laughs> pandemonium. Mating, no yeah. pandas involved, I assume. I hope not. Unluckily what is, what for does them. it mean? What, what is it? Must be just like you. I mean, how do you make mating chaotic? Introduce your trunk. I can see how that would cause pandemonium. Yeah. What, a trunk up the bum? No. Can't, that's not what it can mean, is it? <laughs> I know. <Do> you... <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like pandemonium to me. Um, Dan, do you want to have a guess? Uh, oh, um. Do they? Oh, do they? Do they form a heart um, like you would with your hands? You know, it's yeah. just what to let people trunks? know there's some sex going what, on over here. What a tame definition of of pandemonium! <laughs> romantic, frankly. I oh, think kids pan- now. Like maybe like um, <laughs> could it be like loads of males attacking each other to attract a female? Maybe like uh, a big well, fight. Tell you, uh, it's much less fun actually. It's um, it's a mated when a female has had sex. Her relatives and companions join her. And they have a party, basically. So oh. they they shout and they rumble and they they trumpet like a and, baby shower. Um, it's like a baby shower, except it's a sort of post shag. Yeah. Right. So I'm just quoting from the website here. Females may turn towards the male, reaching their trunks to touch his penis or his semen on the ground, or to touch one another, and then turn rapidly outward in a kind of pirouette. It's a bonding ceremony after after one of your female friends has had sex. Um, Why don't we do that as humans? I think that is a ceremony that should translate across species. <laughs> Every time someone loses their virginity, Andy, you could have yours quite soon. <laughs> If the semen's on the ground, we can all pirouette away from you. (laughs) Okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Andy. My fact is that there is a French parliamentary manoeuvre which involves MPs hiding behind a curtain and then bursting out to vote at the last minute. Right. (laughs) Why? Why? Yeah. Yeah. It's really fun. It's, um, It's not used often. It's um, it's not a weekly feature of the national. Well, you couldn't because then people would just check for yeah, feet sticking right, out. Right. <laughs> How often people forget? Eventually, people forget. Well, I found a reference to it being done in 2014, 
And I don't know if it's been done since then. So um, this was a fact that a writer for The New Yorker called Lauren Collins put it on Twitter, and she reads a lot of uh, French websites uh, as well as uh, English ones. And the, the National Assembly is their parliament, basically, and it's got these enormous red curtains. And if you think, as the opposition, that you're close to defeating the government, Sometimes you can try the coup de rideau, which is the curtain blow. And um, you hide your MPs behind a curtain, you hold the vote, the, you know, the government gets all its votes in, and then they burst out from behind uh, the curtain and vote against the government. And the idea is that they defeat them. It's a way of lulling the government into thinking that uh, your side doesn't have the votes. Doesn't and, the gov- um, does the government ever say, it's so weird there are only six of us in here, because I swear I saw about a dozen other people come in. Well, the one main time when it happened in like living memory was with Sarkozy wasn't it he was he had some kind of internet bill that he wanted to get through it was like just trying to you know ban people from the internet if they copied too many things or whatever Uh, and everyone was so certain it was going to get through that hardly any of his party turned up and Ah. so that's how the other the opposition managed to do something the final result was 21 to 15 in the vote and if wow. you think about how many hundreds of MPs there are in the, in wow. the National Assembly, yeah. it's like they literally didn't think that it was a, a, a problem at all. Yeah. And then suddenly behind the curtain, there were 21 people. When they were behind those curtains, mm. you could have said to your mates behind it, we're all getting Sarkozy behind here, aren't we? That's great. And it would have yes. made sense. Yes. No, but then <laughs> everyone <laughs> laughing so loud at your amazing joke would have given the game away. <laughs> I was just reading some random stuff about French politics and mostly I just really enjoy it when they conform to stereotypes. So I enjoy that Félix Fauré, who was president of France at the end of the 19th century, died just while having sex. Oh, uh, with a 30-year-old mistress, obviously. That's, that puts a real downer on the party that you're having afterwards, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it well, you thing. can... The dusting with semen is going to be a pretty sombre affair this afternoon. <laughs> from dust to dust, from semen to semen. <laughs> he died doing what he loved. I think I think everyone could always say that. Um, just one or two more things on, on French parliamentary shenanigans. Oh, yeah. Um, mm. One thing caught my eye, and it's just incidents that happen outside the French parliament. In 2013, there was a group who launched a protest by releasing a flash mob of chickens outside the French parliament. Um, they had 450 chickens in the back of their van. They were a slightly regressive group, I'd say. They were protesting against gay marriage. And so they bundled 450 chickens into a van. Their plan was to release them all outside the French Parliament as part of an incredibly weak pun. Anna, you would have loved it. Basically, mm-hmm. they wrote, ne plumez pas les familles, or don't pluck families, which also means don't rip people off with family taxes. So it's a very convoluted... I mean, the French for, wow. French for a chicken is a cock. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Feels like right. they missed a trick or two there. I don't know. Huge open goal missed. Yeah. Um, and surely a headline must have read at some point, 450 chickens, that is enough. Brilliant. I should yeah. just, just to give a little coda, only about 40 of them got out of the van, the chickens, before the police noticed, why are these chickens out here and started chasing them? So then they closed the van and bundled off. Um, very sadly, two of the chickens were then killed crossing the road. Oh no! no. Yes. But yes. presumably they were the homophobic chickens who'd got out to protest, so not too big a loss. Um, can I tell you about a very exciting article page on Wikipedia that I read uh, oh, recently? Yeah. Um, so just take us into the world of curtains for a second. Curtain rings really, really brought the, uh, the thunder. I thought when I was reading it. So 
there's a very interesting fact, which is that Lewis and Clark, when they went out on their expeditions, they brought a lot of curtain rings with them as presents. Lewis that they were and Clark, to. were they traveling across the America? The North American interior, yeah, they were... I suppose they were interior <laughs> guys. So <laughs> That's the curtain <laughs> rings. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, if they'd been uh, exploring the exterior, they would have taken the patio furniture with them and the, uh, the fire pit. Yeah. So there, there's that little fact there. And then there's this little paragraph of other uses. And it says... Should we just quickly say, because I think they will have carried them like to trade, right? Or yes. something like that. Sorry. They have, oh. Yeah, yeah they, they were to trade and they were gifts as well. Um, you know, they were really popular new innovations right. back then. So They weren't, for, they didn't have incredibly elaborate tents they were <laughs> no. every night with 400 <laughs> yeah. pairs of curtains. <laughs> no. But what, they're just a good thing to trade? I mean, if you're taking them to people who by and large don't have curtains. They used them as rings and earrings apparently, um, oh. which seems odd as they were specifically meant to be uh, large enough to go around a human finger, which I mean, Whoa. all curtain rings yeah. Yeah, so but, so that's yeah. the thing. It says in this article, yeah. other uses. For example, they may be used as a wedding ring um, in a marriage ceremony. So that's that's one use that they could have. What, what, and what kind what of mean sausage one, fingered I mean... people are getting married that you could use a curtain <laughs> ring as a wedding it's ring? It's what this Wikipedia page says. But then the next thing it says is, or it can be used as a ligature to prevent nocturnal ureses, so bedwetting, right? And right. I thought, okay, this suddenly sounds like someone's just taking the piss here. They're just, someone's hacked this Wikipedia page. I clicked on the link and it took me to a book that's written by a guy called Robert Liston, who was a big surgeon. And he, yeah. yeah. yeah okay. So, so check this out. This is the extract from the book about using it um, uh, as a ligature. AR, when eight years old, passed a brass curtain ring over his penis to prevent incontinence of urine during the night, and thereby escaping chastisement to which he had been frequently subjected. Great swelling soon took place round the ring, and he was unable to remove the jugum. He experienced much pain and difficulty in... The ju- sorry, can we go back to that word you casually used there? The, uh, is it not jugum? I've just not heard that word. No, I'm what actually word not aware are you of saying? that word either. Oh, okay. How do you spell it? How do you spell it? J-U-G-U-M. I assume. Yeah. Wait, Dan, when you say is it not, what, what do you think it well, is? Well, I assume it's an old word for a curtain ring. It's a Imagine. sort of another word for it. Imagine <laughs> if the word on Wordle one day was juggum. <laughs> the internet would go fucking apeshit. It's, it's a very rare word, Dan. Juggum. You can't not acknowledge you just Why? casually dropped the word some, juggum into it's, his it's, say it's, He's put something on his penis, and then this is the same thing he can't take off. It's obviously just another slang word for the item. It's it's irrelevant to the story. So he experienced much pain and difficulty in voiding his urine. Um, the ring gradually ulcerated the ring appeared to sink into the substance of the penis and the swelling subsided oh yes except that this guy kept it on there it says that he then um he after a while became the father of a fine family so he was eight years old when he put this on when between 50 and 60 years of age he applied to me and then this doctor liston then has to remove this curtain ring that's been around this man's penis since the age of eight, which has fused what? into the shaft of his penis. So you're saying it sort of migrated into his exactly. penis? Exactly. It kind of, it just... Through the skin. It got Exactly. It migrated through the skin and it became infused. He had a curtain ring. His penis was the rod to this curtain ring. Yeah, no, and no, no, no. and <laughs> wow. he had kids. He had every. He never thought to take it off. 
uh, if it's fused into your penis, I would just live with it. Well, that's can what I you just did. say. Can I just say? Um, we're filming this on Zoom today. We don't usually at the moment. And Dan is in a bedroom. Can anyone else not turn their eyes off the curtain that's behind <laughs> his left shoulder? Actually, you're right. Is one of the cur- one of the curtains at the end is sort of hanging off a bit? Um, like there's yeah. a ring missing. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> Dan, well, I thought many... Dan was getting slowly more and more purple as this went on. <laughs> Just because you said it, and I had to know, a jugum is not an old word for a curtain oh. ring. A jugum is specifically a forceps for compressing the penis. In olden days, use an anti-masturbatory device. Apparently, mm. apparently, you need it. You needed a word that specific. Okay, so great swelling took around, oh. took place around the ring, and he was unable to remove. It seems like they're using it metaphorically because that's how he was using it, right? He was almost using it like one of these medical Mm. things. Anyway, his his penis worked again. Like, it worked normally again. He was like, wow, my piss is flowing nicely. This is in his 60s. Yeah, but he always got an erection whenever he had a curtain being moved, which is very embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) Can I tell you um, an anecdote about um, politics, which is not French, but I kind of like it. It's about a vote, Mm. so it is kind of Mm. related. So this is in 1872, and there was a vote against the New Zealand government. And it looked like it was going to come down to one vote. So this is like, what do you call that when it's like in confidence of the of the government? So if they lose this, the government oh, yeah. could fall. And it was going to come down to one vote. And one of the governing party called Edward Wakefield was a massive drunk. Okay. So his colleagues locked him in a room and they took all of his alcohol away from him. And they kept him in this room and they said, right, we're going to leave you there. And we're going to keep you sober. And then as soon as the vote starts, we'll let you out and you can vote and then you can do whatever you want. Okay. So they put Edward Wakefield in this room and the opposition learned about it. And so they lowered a bottle of whiskey down the chimney <laughs> of the room that he was in. Uh, he drank the whiskey and he was un- unable to vote and the government of New Zealand fell. Oh, wow. Jesus Brilliant. Brilliant. That's incredible. Wow. You really do have a problem then. I think the next trip when you let out of that room is a trip to the AA. He must have thought it was Christmas, right? When the yeah. bottle of whiskey comes yeah. down. <laughs> Santa's changed, hasn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Can't be asked to come down the chimney himself anymore. <laughs> Where was it? Oh, that's great. Well, do you want to look? Do you just want to impress your curtain loving friends? Always. Yes, oh, yes, please. yes, you do. Yep. Do you know what you call a curtain's helmet? <laughs> I, di- I didn't even know a curtain had a helmet, Anna. Embarrassingly. Well, well, when I say helmet, what I mean is, you know, um, on quite old-fashioned curtains or ornate curtains, you get like a fabric or sometimes a wooden border at the top. Or a skirt, uh, like a, a top skirt for the curtain. A like a hem skirt. kind of thing. Yeah, but like a, an a upper and sort of a high hem. I'd exactly. call it. A, I'd call it a skirton if we were starting from scratch with the language. Yeah. Um. That's actually better, uh, and that wouldn't have forced me into saying, "Do you know what you call a cunt's helmet?" When it's clearly not a helmet, but it is called a pelmet. <laughs> oh, a pelmet. Okay. Yeah. It's called a oh, pelmet. Oh, that's quite good because isn't a pelmet slang for an extremely short skirt, like a racially short skirt, is a pelmet? Is it? Oh. Yeah. Is it? And that's it what, might if, be. If a curtain was analogous to a pair of legs, that little bit at the top would be a pelmet, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Dude, I did not know that, but that feels like one must be named after the other. It and is, I know like the pelmet. Pel- yeah. Do you know what kind of pelmet, though, a lambrequin is? Uh, no, I don't. A lambrequin, no. Or a lambrequin oh. is a pelmet with such deep sides they extend to the floor. Just if you're ever at anyone's house, you can say, 
I love your lambrequins. I think you're more likely to say, have you considered having some lambrequins here? Because they're not likely to have them themselves. Helmet which goes all the way to the floor. On the sides uh, of the of Yeah, the yeah, not all the way down, because so that would be a blind. That's a curtain. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Is it yeah. to conceal... So like a it... square curtain, so it would come yeah. out on the sides and then yeah. it would be kind of flat in the front and you'd have your pelmet at the top, but then on the yeah. sides it would come all the you way got, down. Yeah, I see. Right. So you're and yes, it is. That's, that's quite nice. I might get that. It is in answer to your assumption, Andy. It is to conceal uh, the embarrassing bits like the curtain rings and yeah. the pole. Well, ah. well, now we know they are functionally cock rings. I think it's probably <laughs> quite a good idea to hide them. <laughs> Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that one of the biggest theme parks in China has a ride that puts visitors in a coffin, rolls them into a chamber, and then simulates their cremation. <laughs> this is the uh, this is the Sadmahi game. It's the experience of death. It's the cremator. It goes by many, many names. It is a very bizarre 4D virtual experience that supposedly, according to reports from 2014, costs roughly £26. And the idea is that you go into a morgue, you get into a coffin, and they push you through on a conveyor belt all the way to the crematorium, where then you are burnt to a cinder, at least. That's the sensation that you're going to get. <laughs> lots of hot air, lots of weird lights, and it just prepares you for your inevitable death, uh, is the idea. <laughs> so, I mean, first of all, it's not the sensation. They claim it. It's not the sensation of being burnt to a cinder, is it? Because that would be a much less pleasant ride. It's the sensation of being a bit warm with some weird lights. Well, yes. there are two, the two people who came up with the idea who are Huangge Weipeng and Ding Rui. Uh, they're two people from Shanghai. Uh, when um, Huangge went into it, he said, um, I couldn't breathe and I thought my life was over. That was the first time he ever tried wow. it. So to him, he thought he was dying, didn't it? Yeah. Although, I, but I, that was when he, so they, I think to prepare for making this, they asked to be sent through a crematorium, right? And yeah. they asked the control of the crematorium to let them experience cremation with the crucial difference that he turned off the furnace. It's, it does yeah. say it heats you up to about 40 degrees yeah. um, Celsius, mm. not Fahrenheit, which is, that's warm. That is very warm. I would I would feel pretty uncomfortable at that. Yeah, um, I, can, yeah. I think it depends yeah. on also, you know, if you're claustrophobic, if you're, you know, so many senses yeah. are going to come into play. Um, but they do say it's an authentic experience of burning. And <laughs> I think that sounds <laughs> the, So the idea fun. is it's not a ride like, let's say, the big one in, mm. um, or Oblivion or something like that. It's basically like an escape room. And there's a load of challenges. And let's say there's us four are doing all the challenges. After each mm. one, whoever does the challenge worst will, in inverted commas, die. And then when you die, you get put into the coffin and they do this kind of um, cremation thing. And then there's three people left. And then whoever comes last out of those three people then does the um, cremation. So you're each kind of challenge, you're trying not to die. And the worst mm. person does die. And then in the end, the last person, they actually make them die anyway because all people die in the end that's the idea so everyone gets to everyone gets to do the little ride at the end but yeah it's like challenges that you have to do to get to it 
I would love, by the way, if anyone's listening to this who's been to the cremator, to please let us know what it was actually like, because I can't find anyone really who's properly done it. Like, I went on TripAdvisor, and it says that this is part of the Windows of the World amusement park in Shenzhen. So this is a pretty amazing place where they've replicated some of the biggest landmarks in the world, um, some to sort of quite a nice big scale, like the Eiffel Tower is the third of the size of the Eiffel Tower. They've got a life-size Mount Rushmore. They've got, you know, you can do anything that's um, a sort of landmark around the world. They most likely have it. And then, supposedly, they have this random uh, cremator game that you can play. Um, No one on TripAdvisor has mentioned it. I can't see anyone who's been to it. So I I would love to know. Do you think... Is it possible that they keep forgetting to turn off the furnace? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Thank yeah, God they didn't survive to leave the one-star review. It's, it's funny because I'm, I'm not really worried about the being cremated bit. No. Because I don't expect to be... If I am conscious for that, something's gone so badly wrong that even the brief preparation I've done at this escape room I think is not going to be enough good <laughs> to, to see me through yeah. it with a calm mood. Um <laughs> That's a tricky point. one. Yeah. Um, do you guys have anything on cremation? Just by, by the yeah, I could just, just say a little things. bit more on this particular thing. Maybe. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this um, this ride escape room thing, it comes from something called the Coffin Academy, which began in South Korea. And this <laughs> was um, a... The idea was that it's trying to prepare people for death. And if you prepare for death, then it makes you able to live your life more freely because you're not worried about something that might happen. And it was founded by a guy called Jung Jun and um, Samsung in South Korea. They required 900 of their employees to go to some of these sessions so that they could learn about what might happen when you die. And you you write your own epitaph. You compose last letters to your loved ones. And you're placed in a coffin for 10 minutes at the end. And that's supposed to be like this memento mori of, of wow. reminding you to live your life because one day you might die. That's really good. I hope they don't post the letters. Because that's a distressing experience for their families. If they accidentally yeah. mix up in the post room. Yeah. It does um, work, though. Thinking, thinking incessantly about death is actually good for you, uh, apparently. And I think it was about South Korea's soaring suicide rate wasn't it that they wanted to combat because it got a higher suicide rate in the world i think but there have been studies that show if you think about dying for five minutes a day apparently five to ten minutes a day you will be happier and they did a study where they got people to write emails or respond to emails about dying and death every day for about 10 minutes and they found that the people who had done that they had increased positive mood better self-esteem increased intrinsic motivation whatever that means i suppose they felt like they had a reason to live and so it does work and you can get like apps there's an app called we croak that my husband has which is very annoying because it reminds you five times a day that you're going to die what how do it work yeah and it says, and it's quite annoying because he rarely uses his phone. So it's always the latest message that came up because it comes up five times a day. So whenever I'm walking past it and I move the phone, all I see is the phrase, don't forget you're going to die. Why does he have this? Because of this psychological thing we were just talking I, about? Is this actually, yeah. does your husband actually have this or do you text him this five times a day? Just <laughs> <laughs> I've been leaving constant threats. Uh, but yeah, planning your own death, um, people do. People plan their own funerals. Mm-hmm. It's becoming more and more popular and actually attend their own funerals now, 
which is another way of reminding yourself you're going to die quite on the nose. But this is a tradition that started in Japan, apparently, in the 1990s, and they're called pre-funerals, so or saizenso in Japan. And I think they started out in response to, like, funerals were being really commercialised and people were being ripped off for these just... Um, off the conveyor belt, out of the um, catalogue funerals. And they thought, look, we want some more uh, personalised funerals. And I don't want to fork out so much cash. I don't want my poor family to be forking out so much cash after I die. And so pre-funerals have become a thing. And it's when people plan and then attend their own funeral, say a few words, say goodbye. It's usually older people. It's quite rare that you get like an 18-year-old having a pre-funeral. And then... That's nice. Saves your family having to do it. And I guess you get to go to your own party at the end of the day. That is cool. Yeah. Do people, I guess people must know that they're attending your pre-funeral instead of your funeral. Yeah, I don't think you do the surprise surprise behind, <laughs> from behind the curtain. Well, that'd be, that'd be great, be great use of your uh, escape room coffin. You'd finally get to use it instead of it yeah. just being a, a thing for post-death. Good yeah. point. I do think it's a good idea, but... I, and I think it's a good idea from your perspective as the person who's having the pre-funeral, if you want to get, do all the mindfulness and remind yourself of your potential and experience life properly. But I don't think it's a good experience for people who want to know what other people would say about them. No. Because because everyone knows that you're not really, you're in the front row, you're sitting there. So they, yeah. they'll they say nice things, but you'll you'll think... Yeah, but in fairness, that Andy, anyway? no, people don't go to funerals in general and say, <laughs> oh, he was a complete <laughs> idiot. <Do> they... <laughs> <laughs> Thank God I can let loose now that he's not conscious anymore. <laughs> if he was here, I wouldn't say this, but what an asshole. <laughs> it's probably pretty similar before and after, and they're both lies, I think is what we're saying. <laughs> um, I've definitely read, and this, I might yeah. have said this before, I've definitely read a funeral director say that it's really common uh, when bodies are cremated that you end up with metal implements that have been left in their body during surgery. And I've always been so sceptical about the fact that surgeons are so careless. They're just dropping things in our bodies left, right and centre. But apparently that's uh, quite a thing. Oh. You pop in, you get a scalpel and a knife, a pair of scissors. Really? Gossipy boma it's called, isn't it, supposedly? A what? It's, it's called gossipy boma. The, um, sorry? If, if, if someone boma. leaves stuff in your body during surgery, that's the technical word for it. Right. And it comes from gossipy mus, which means cloth or something. Okay. Which word do you think is rarer? Gossipy Boma or Jugum? <laughs> I'd never heard of Jugum before today, I must admit. I think you might be right, yeah. Um the, you know when when you're being cremated? Yeah. And you go through the um the curtains. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of French what? politicians. <laughs> <laughs> Nightmare. Um what's the next thing that happens? Fire. Mm. Right. Well, I didn't. Th- not, necess- not necessarily. Yeah, I didn't think there was fire. I thought it was deep heat, not deep heat. No, <laughs> <laughs> what, what they those... rub you with that bulb. Yeah, it's just there's a, a little there's bomb. just a muscular masseur uh, on the other side of the curve. I told to, you it was um... just a sprain. I don't know what the fuss is about. <laughs> what are you on about? Deep heat. What Dan? What is? I thought it was an intensive heat, which oh, I see. instead of a instead of a physical fire. It turns out that you don't automatically immediately go into the furnace. Just to be clear, it is it is uh, not deep heat, whatever Dan means. It's, it's flame. It's, oh, it is it's flame. Gas, okay. powered flame. Yeah, yeah. Um, but legally, they have 72 hours before they have to cremate you. 
What does that Why, mean? What, what, so do they, do they do fun stuff with your body in that three days? No, they're not, <laughs> they're not, allowed, to, they're not allowed to interfere. Uh, but they, they, they aim to do it on the same day. But sometimes just they, it's busy and they, they don't uh, get around to cremating you. I suppose so they, they might want to do a few people at once. No, I don't think they're allowed to. No, you're not. not. I don't think. Well, I think because they're they're getting your you gather the ashes for your family, yeah. and then oh, I, so they would yeah, never make people. I didn't up, yeah. mean like just put everyone in the same box, but I thought like right. maybe just not turn the fire on and then turn it off again and then turn it on and then turn it. Maybe off again. it's incredibly energy intensive. I mean, it uses so much. Um, it uses so much energy, and in fact, there's a. You guys have heard of Redditch, the, the town. The place. Yeah, the town. It's yeah. in Birmingham. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's relatively large. Cremation. Yeah. Well, there's a swimming pool in Redditch which is heated by the local crematorium's spare heat. Oh, I love that. They voted for it in 2013, and um, the council voted for it. And they won an award for it from some green group. Ah. There were lots of protests at the time. Oh, really? And ironically, whenever I use deep heat because I seem to be allergic <laughs> to capsaicin, I get a Redditch. <laughs> 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 that pr- that proves something, doesn't it? It's, it's hard to tell what. It shows that the whole universe is connected in some way. <laughs> okay, it is time for our final fact of the show, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that the actor Peter O'Toole once smuggled a pair of earrings out of Greece by hiding them in his foreskin. Right, <laughs> and I must oh. say, I came up with this fact before we talked about all the, you know, curtain rings and penises and stuff. That's just a coincidence that those two things came up in the same show. Yeah, mm-hmm. I completely forgot that I had that fact in relation to this fact. What an extraordinary thing—an outer and inner what? ring in one show. What a what an object to smuggle under your foreskin. A pair of earrings, yeah. traditionally quite sharp. Yes. Well, unless they were they clip on. I think that would actually be more painful. <laughs> oh, Ooh, yeah. I think not. Oh, I think because these were ancient, so I think before the invention of clip-on. Not that I know when ah. clip-ons were invented, but I assume they're more modern. <laughs> the Etruscans didn't have clip-on earrings. <laughs> We'd have to rethink a lot of our assumptions. <laughs> Seems unlikely. Um, so we are currently or just coming to the end of the T series of QI, and we we're doing a section on tools. And I thought when I was looking at the scripts, I would flesh one of them out with an anecdote about Peter O'Toole. So I thought if I'd find any anecdotes about him and I found this one in the Telegraph uh, and then it was also in a a biography of him um, by Nicholas Wapshot Um, and he said that while Peter O'Toole was um, filming Lawrence of Arabia he developed a love of exotic antiquities and so knowing that he wasn't allowed to take these things out of Greece legally he thought where can I hide them and that no one would think of looking. And he said, um, Nicholas Webshot says it was an act of daring which caused him pain for weeks afterwards. Wow. Okay, so this I mean... wasn't a classic. <laughs> this wasn't like how we got the Elgin marbles here. This is this is a very <laughs> unique smuggling <laughs> use. They were that's, actually... a, that's a big brag, isn't it? If you say, oh, I smuggled the Elgin marbles out of mine. They were that's... smuggled in an elephant's foreskin all the way through the roads of Cornwall. <laughs> Um, do we know if he weaved them through or just tucked them under? I I don't know for certain, but it can only be tucked under. 
it got to be tucked under. What, he didn't what, pierce what, what his weave them through. No, of course. Did co- he pierce no, his you foreskin? Wouldn't, you, you would wouldn't. not do that. The only no, other way I can think of doing it is you kind of sellotape them to your penis and wait for the foreskin to grow over them over many, many years. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Long only game. other possible Long game with those. <laughs> Well, he was, he was out there filming it for two years. Maybe the filming only took a month, but he had to wait the remaining <laughs> year and three quarters for the, the skin to grow. There is scant more information about this uh, that I managed Gosh. to find. I don't know if you guys did, but it's just an anecdote it's... in his anecdote-filled life. Yes. Yeah. I do Actually, I do have a related anecdote. Just before oh. we get into Peter O'Toole, I do, on this subject, have uh, a similar story. A friend of mine, um, I don't know if I should say this, but uh, in the dressing room before each show, one of his colleagues would play a game with all of them called Guess What's Under the Foreskin, where he would hide something beneath his foreskin, show everyone the foreskin, and the rest of the cast would have to guess what it was. Okay, and so the idea is you can see the outline. So if it was like a mountain bike, you'd be able to tell the, <laughs> the shape of the wheels and stuff. <laughs> that's a fucked up Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's how your presents are wrapped. <laughs> So um, okay. I asked uh, for the kind of things that he said. He said once it was an old fashioned penny, once it was seven jelly beans. <laughs> How are you supposed to identify an old fashioned penny? You can't read the date inscribed on a penny through a foreskin. That's too much to ask. You can tell which monarch is depicted. <laughs> <laughs> that is a hell of a brass rubbing to work that out, isn't it? <laughs> he was extremely eccentric. I mean, he. There are, there are so many stories about him. So, for example, um, his wife got him some ping pong balls to throw at the TV screen when he didn't like it. That doesn't sound very rock and roll, but apparently she only did this because he broke their previous TV set by throwing a smaller TV through it. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's amazing. Isn't That's, that rock and roll? That's impressive. Yeah. That's like one of those kids' games where you have to fit the appropriate shape into itself. <laughs> and he's done it right. We should say really quickly, um, because a lot of people will be a, a lot younger, might not have even heard of Peter at all, but this guy was a ginormous actor in the day of um, old Hollywood. So Lawrence of Arabia, probably his seminal role, the uh, the big epic, some three hours and a bit long. Um, he played the role of Lawrence, and he was part of that crew of Hollywood that were the sort of hell raisers, these these people that just didn't care about what they were doing and but they you know he was nominated eight times for best actor in the Oscars uh, so he was a, he was a huge uh, player within and never the... w- never won an acting Oscar did he and that's I think the record with Glenn Close both him and Glenn Close eight times nominated no wins wow, wow. yeah and at least Glenn Close can say oh so close he doesn't even have <laughs> that uh, yeah, he was quite pissed off about that, I think. Um, uh, in fact, he was offered an honorary Oscar in 2003, and that was when he'd had seven nominations for Best Actor. And he didn't want to take it. He said, I'd like to defer that for at least 10 years because I might yet win the lovely bugger outright, uh, he said. And the only reason he did go and accept the honorary Oscar was because his daughter wanted a jaunt in L.A. So he went and did it. And then he got nominated an eighth time in 2007. Didn't win that either. Didn't win it. Oh. Poor guy. Mm. There are worse fates, but... There are. <laughs> um, he was friends with Samuel Beckett, uh, who we mentioned before, yeah. Um, there's a story, it's not much of a story, really, that he um, kind of had a big night out with um, Samuel Beckett in Soho, um, sitting in the doorway, drinking whiskey until the early hours, getting the policemen involved and having drinks with them. Um, his second Oscar nomination was for Beckett, uh, the movie Beckett, 
uh, in which oh. he played Henry II. So that was about uh, Thomas Beckett. So he was friends with Samuel Beckett. He was nominated for the movie Beckett. And he was born on Beckett Street in Leeds. Wow. wow. Amazing. Very wow. Cool. <laughs> he had um, lots, as I suppose everyone has who's been a jobbing actor for ages, had lots of other jobs to actually pay the bills. But he, were, I think, quite a good expression of his personality was the fact that he worked as a steeplejack and he worked as a demolition man and this was in his early 20s I think when he was in Leeds and he loved it he said blowing things up and knocking things down with a bloody great hammer nobody gave a flying shit for health and safety in those days it was glorious and he Uh, loved that and I think he also loved being in the navy didn't he yes sorry what were you gonna say a steeplejack that's someone who climbs up very tall buildings isn't it steeplejack uh, yeah. What do, do? what do they do when they're up there? Um, I thought they kind they of just... fix them. They, uh, although this this implies that he's it knocking it down, so it sounds like he's doing like it wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those one of those old old jobs. Ye oldy jobs. Yeah. Of. Yeah. The robots can do it now. Just it, 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 on a an irrelevant thing about climbing up tall buildings. I learned the word flaunching the other day. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Launching. Mm. Is it God, launching, launching yourself off a floor? <laughs> <laughs> It's um. This is very. It's, it's actually extremely boring. But you know, a chimney pot at the top of a. There's a chimney stack, and then there's a tiny bit right at the top with the round chimney pot. Yeah. 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 The the little layer of cement mortar between the stack and the pot is called the flaunching. Okay. That is right. Quite That's a amazing. quite a niche thing to have a word for, really. I know, but if you have a roof around, you can you can knock them dead by saying, "Have you um? Have you considered the flaunching?" <laughs> Is it maybe a problem with the flaunch? That was like when I learned that um, brickwork had to be pointed. I still don't know what it yeah. means, but I used to whenever a builder came around, I was like, oh, I think these, these bricks need to be pointed. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Wow. <laughs> God, that, that is a useful uh, word. Like, Anyway, what are we learned today? We've learned jugum, flaunching. flaunching, and what was the curtains one? It's a lambrequin. Lambrequin. Wow. Like a harlequin who's drunk on Lambrini. That's how you remember it. Launching. First, first there's a problem with my flaunching. Then the lambrequins yeah. fall over. I tell you, if something happens to my jugum next, that's going to be the full set. <laughs> when they were delivering that bottle of whiskey to that New Zealand guy, was oh, yeah. the flaunching an issue in getting the bottle <laughs> down? Great question. Hmm. I don't think the flaunching usually gets in the way, sounds like, unless it's very badly done. Okay. And you don't want bad flaunching on a house. That'll ruin the value. No. <laughs> yes, I am. Um, so Peter sorry. O'Toole? We were talking about, we were talking about Peter O'Toole. I, I, I'm sorry for distracting you. In 1980, he did uh, Macbeth, the old Vic. Ooh. And it was absolutely hammered. The critics hated it. They said he was, he was as subtle as a battering ram. Um, the observer said there are chances that he likes the play, but his performance suggests that he is taking some kind of personal revenge on it. So he's like really, really, really hated. Um, but they, you know, they people loved it because it was Peter O'Toole. He's very famous. It was almost kind of fun to go and watch something that was so bad it was good kind of thing. But it could have been so much better uh, because originally he was the director. Uh, and he was basically allowed to do what he wanted. And so he decided it was going to be an inflatable Macbeth. And he had a friend who was working for a company called Labuta Limited, um, which was making inflatables that you could keep in the boot of your car. 
and he decided that he was going to commission this person to do all of the scenery in Macbeth and it was going to be a massive inflatable Macbeth and in the first time they tried to do the rehearsals um, someone said that the curtain rose to reveal a dimly lit collection of black plastic phalluses swaying in the wind (laughs) (laughs) and on top of that no one could hear what anyone was saying because these were inflatables that had to be constantly blown up so it was just like the air compression was just like (laughs) the whole time no one could hear anything that they were saying and so in the end he scrapped the inflatables um, but it was still a terrible terrible play Peter O'Toole sort of started acting by mistake he um he was steeplejacking one day wasn't he and there was accidentally an audience at the top of the uh flaunching he was climbing up towards yes um, it flaunched his career didn't it Um, no, it's it wasn't that. He was doing. He was in Leeds. He was doing a poetry course. He actually always wanted to do something in poetry. He loved uh, literature and poetry. He was doing a poetry course in Leeds, and there was a professional production of Fathers and Sons going on down the road. And the lead actor in that production fell down some stairs and broke some bones. Uh, and in fact, O'Toole remembered his name was Gordon Luck. So, ouch. <laughs> Doubly painful for him. Poor old Gordon. Gord I'd suffered some bard luck. Gordon, unlucky. Um, <laughs> fell down some stairs. And they'd seen Peter O'Toole do some sort of little skit for fun on an amateur stage in the area the year before. So they said, look, do you want to play the lead in Fathers and Sons? Uh, and he said, yes. And he played it for two weeks. He said, I played it for two weeks. And then I got the bug. And there was no going back. What's hmm. interesting is that it is bad luck to say Gord luck. In the theatre, isn't it? You're not supposed to say oh, that. You're yeah. supposed to say break a leg. Oh, my God, of course. He, he should have changed. Leg. What could you change your name to that sounds like break a leg? Uh, like, but... um, if you change your name to Macbeth, no one will ever call you for anything <laughs> in the theatre at all. Why am I not booking any gigs? <laughs> <laughs> um, he once took a, uh, a double bed on the Northern Line, Peter O'Toole. Yeah. Where did he, where did he take yeah, it? Okay. To another, to, to a different stop on the Northern Morning Line. But, why? Why? <laughs> uh, did he just not? He thought the seats were uncomfortable. No, he had to. He had to move the bed from one place to it. It was in 1954, and it was. A, it's an anecdote in his autobiography. But, but I think um, the interesting part about the anecdote is he didn't pay, right? And he sneaked it yeah. on and sneaked it off, and he managed to sneak it through the turnstiles, a double bed, without anyone well, I noticing. Think, I think there were there were no turnstiles at the time. He says at the start of the anecdote, "This is before the bad days oh, really? of turnstiles." But still, <laughs> it's very impressive. Yeah, take... how, I mean, yeah. how big was his foreskin? It's extraordinary. Okay, that's it. That is all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland, Andy at Andrew Hunter M, James at James Harkin, and Anna. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our group account, which is at no such thing, or our website, no such thing as a fish.com. All of our previous episodes are up there. Do check them out. But otherwise, come back next week because we will be back again with another episode, and we'll see you then. Goodbye. <laughs>